Is evolution supported by the facts? Is evolution more than a theory? Well, these are things that we're going to talk about today on BibleStudyPodcasts.org, starting now. Hello, everybody, and welcome once again to BibleStudyPodcast.org. Today is Wednesday, February the 11th of 2009, and as always, I'm your host, Toby Logsdon, and welcome to everybody who's joining us today. As you have probably noticed, we are taking yet another uh, little bit of a break from our Knowing God series. I planned on starting it up again this week. We took a, a break last week to do the Q&A lesson, and I was going to do a Knowing God lesson. We were going to resume it this week, but... I found out over the weekend that this week marks what would have been the 200th anniversary of Charles Darwin's birth, or his 200th birthday. So I decided uh, that even though this is something that we've covered before, even though evolution is something that I have uh, that I've really taught a lot against, and we've done you know five reasons to reject evolution before, we did that uh, pretty close to the time that we actually got the podcast uh, the podcast going a couple of years ago. But uh, you know I I have refined my answers somewhat, and maybe my answers are a little bit different than they were before. And so I wanted to uh, I wanted to do this this week just because it does mark what would have been Charles Darwin's 200th birthday. So hopefully this is something that you guys will be blessed by. Uh, and I also know that we're probably going to have some atheists and naysayers and naturalists and agnostics listening to this. So uh, welcome to you guys, too. I'm, I'm more than glad to have you guys joining us. If uh, if you're not a Christian, we're more than glad to have you here. We don't have everything in common with you guys as far as worldview goes, obviously. But one thing we do have in common with you guys is reason. We all have the ability to use logic. Uh, it's undeniable. Everybody uses logic. The three laws of logic are things that apply to all of us, and we all use those things in every sentence we make. And so we recognize that as Christians, uh, we do have some common ground with you guys. And so uh, if you would, just have a listen to what we have to say today. And if you have any questions, you can email me at cleanslate.ministries at hotmail.com. So anyway, let's go ahead and get started with today's lesson with a quick word of prayer. Father God, we just... Thank you so much for reason. We thank you so much for logic. We know that it flows from you and from your nature and uh, that you are perfect in your nature. And so, Lord, I just pray that you will give us all clear minds, give us all uh, a sense of discernment as we go through this lesson, and help us to understand uh, some of the theories that we're up against here. Help us learn to, uh, to apply logic to our reasoning and help us to ask the right questions in order that we can know the truth about reality, ultimately. We give you this time, Lord, because we love you. In the mighty name of Jesus, amen. Well, let me just start off by saying that one of the most dominating 
and influential attacks ever to face Christianity uh, throughout history, or, or theism in general, not just Christianity, but theism in general, is the theory of evolution. And I bring up that it's an attack against theism uh, in general, that is, the belief in the existence of God, because at least some Jews and some Muslims consider the theory of evolution to be an attack against their beliefs as well. Uh, those are the other theistic, uh, monotheistic religions, and so I kind of put us all in one category, and I think that Jews and Muslims and Christians alike uh, will agree on what we're talking about here today. And here's why it would be considered an attack against any form of theism, or these forms of theism. It's because Judaism, Christianity, and Islam all teach that God created the earth, and that part of creation included the creation of a literal man named Adam. All three of these monotheistic religious systems alike take Adam to be a literal, fully developed human being and to have been the first human being. And he wasn't the result of an evolutionary process. Rather, these theistic, these monotheistic religions teach that Adam was the result of the creation process. He was a direct result of the creation process. Now, before we get started with the reasons that I reject evolution, let me clarify an issue which will undoubtedly be raised if I don't answer it, uh, you know, right here, right off the bat. Uh, someone is undoubtedly going to come across this lesson and say, now wait a minute, is this based on the theory of an old earth or of a young earth? You know, the Bible seems to indicate that the world is relatively young, according to the young earth theory, and the old earth theory would respond by noting that the earth shows evidence of being much, much older than the young earth theory would allow for, which is usually somewhere between 6,000, 6,500 years or so. So, which theory do I presuppose? Do I hold to a new earth or a young earth theology or an old earth theology? My answer is a resounding yes. So does that settle the question for you guys? Well, of course not, because I haven't really given you a definitive answer. Here's the thing. I believe that the age of the earth is irrelevant to this question. Yes, let me say that again. I believe that the age of the earth is irrelevant to the question. Do I believe that God created the earth in six literal 24-hour days? Yeah, I do, in fact. But that doesn't lead to the necessary conclusion that the earth is young. There are several, several possible ways to affirm that the world was created in six literal 24-hour days, and at the same time, affirm that the world is millions or billions of years old. And one possibility, which... Uh, which personally keeps me from giving a definitive advantage to either the, the young earth or the old earth theories is this. What if God decided to put, just let me put any number out there, 10 million years. What if God decided to put 10 million years between each literal 24-hour day? Well, the text doesn't eliminate that possibility. So the fact is that the Bible doesn't really teach either a young or old earth theory or theology. And so the result is that I am a young earth creationist every Tuesday and Thursday, and I'm an old earth creationist on Mondays and Fridays. Wednesdays, I'm undecided, and I take the weekends off from thinking about it at all. So, <laughs> of course, I'm being facetious, but the bottom line is this. We don't know how old the earth really is, but it's really an irrelevant issue to the matter. I believe that humanity has been on the earth for roughly 6,000 to 6,500 years because the Bible does present Adam as a literal 
man. There's not a single time throughout the entire Bible that Adam is presented as nothing more than a non-literal, maybe representative figure. Uh, that is a figure which is less than literal. You know, I affirm that the earth was created in six literal 24-hour days, and that Adam is a literal, historical, fully developed man who is the first man, and that his existence is to be attributed to a direct act of God's creation rather than to the gradual process of evolution. So, uh, with all of that being said, I also need to point out that I don't deny the concept of survival of the fittest. And this is where we have to make a distinction. Uh, We have to make a distinction between microevolution, which we'll define as uh, any adaptations or mutations within a single species, and we make a distinction between that and macroevolution, which we'll define as a process, either gradual or sudden. Uh, this process of genetic adaptation or mutation, which results in one species of animal eventually developing into an entirely different distinct species of animal. And I don't deny the possibility of small adaptations within a species, and we'll get to that in just a moment as we discuss the reasons that I reject macroevolution, which is the theory that was advanced by Charles Darwin. Speaking of Charles Darwin, by the way, I should point out again that this week marks what would have been his 200th birthday. And many of you who are parents, if you have kids in in public schools, many of you would probably know this because it's a well-publicized thing in our public schools this week. And the result is that this week, our children are being brainwashed by their educators to believe that Darwin's theory of evolution explains our existence. Uh, What they probably don't teach your children is that Darwin was a racist and that his ideology taught that Caucasian people or white people are more advanced in the evolutionary process than other races, and thus the white or Caucasian race is the superior race. So what I'm hoping here is that um, that you guys will get some ammunition. You can you can share this lesson with your kids so that they have something to confront the ideology that they're being taught at school this week. So the fact is that Darwin was a racist. He believed that white people uh, were an advanced, uh, were more advanced in the evolutionary process than other races. And in fact, most people don't realize that the book which Darwin wrote in Proposing Evolution, which was titled, of course, The Origin of Species, it had a subtitle. It was called, in its full title, The Origin of Species by the Preservation of Favored Races. So those who defend Darwin will argue, and they, they must argue, that Darwin was referring to a species of animals, not the human race. However, I have to question if those people are aware of the racism that's just completely obvious in his writings. For example, Darwin wrote in another book called The Descent of Man that, quote, at some future period, not very distant as measured by centuries, the civilized races of man will almost certainly exterminate and replace the savage races throughout the world. At the same time, the anthropomorphous apes will no doubt be exterminated. The break between man and his nearest allies will then be wider, for it will intervene between man in a more civilized state, as we may hope, even than the Caucasian, and some ape as low as a baboon, instead of, as now, between the Negro or Australian and the gorilla, end quote. And this is found on page 178 of the second edition of the book, which was published in 1878 by A.L. Burt Company. 
I can't believe, you know, in this day and age, he'd never get away with publishing something like this, but Darwin is worshipped as, uh, or heralded, I guess, as, uh, as the person who came forth and uh, had this great idea about where we all came from. And one would have to be completely naive to think that the origin of species by the preservation of the favored races was referring to anything uh, except humanity. And in fact, it was no secret that Darwin was referring to the superiority of the white race, or the the Caucasian race. And Adolf Hitler was himself actually an evolutionist and a big fan of Darwin's writings. In Hitler's uh, famous book titled Mein Kampf, he discussed evolution extensively, referring to non-white races as, quote, lower human types, end quote. And as he wrote, uh, referring to the struggle for racial supremacy, he also wrote, uh, Adolf Hitler also wrote, quote, The stronger must dominate and not blend with the weaker, thus sacrificing his own greatness. Only the born weakling can view this as cruel, but he, after all, is only a weak and limited man. For if this law did not prevail, any conceivable higher evolutionary development of organic living beings would be unthinkable. End quote. Well, we know the outcome, don't we? We know what Hitler went on to do. Hitler tried to create the master race by encouraging white people to mate, uh, but exporting, imprisoning, and exterminating every other race within Germany, particularly those of Jewish heritage. But still, if Darwin is correct, then the fact that someone like Hitler uh, may have misapplied Uh, the whole concept of evolution, it might be a tragedy, but we could still believe that macroevolution is a real phenomenon. We could just dismiss it as saying, hey, you know, Hitler just misunderstood what Darwin was saying, and uh, he just took it, you know, too far. And on those grounds, you know, we could, you know, stick with the theory of evolution. But I reject evolution, macroevolution outright, and I'm going to give you five reasons why I do. And I'm going to keep the discussion uh, somewhat brief because I want you to be able to memorize them for yourself as well, and honestly, we've got a lot of stuff to cover here. So with that being said, and with our clarifications and presuppositions out of the way, let's talk about these five reasons to reject macroevolution. Now, the first reason is it's irrefutable. The potential of an effect cannot be greater than the potential of its cause. Let me say that again. The potential of an effect cannot be greater than the potential of its cause. In other words, if something has a beginning to its existence, uh, that would be an effect. And to determine what the cause is, you just have to determine what it was that brought that something into existence. Or let's look at it another way. Let's say that someone has a, I don't know, a black belt in karate or something, and to demonstrate uh, their talent, uh, their strength, and their their focus, they tell you that they're going to punch through a piece of wood. Uh, The force that the person uses in punching through the wood is limited, and thus it has a certain amount of potential. It has potential to be less, and uh, there's only so hard that a person can hit a piece of wood, or or anything for that matter. So, So there is a range of potential there. The force with which the person punches the wood will result in uh, the wood breaking only if that force is sufficient to do so. The potential of the punch is contingent upon how much force the person 
inputs into the punch. If the person merely taps the wood in the same way that a person would maybe knock on a door or something, the wood probably wouldn't break unless the wood has, you know, maybe some kind of defect or, you know, something that would cause it to break only under uh, under minor force. But the effect, that is the breaking of the wood, the effect is therefore contingent upon the potential of the punch, the potential force within the punch. The potential of that effect won't be greater than the potential of the punch, which causes the wood to break. In other words, if you knock lightly on the wood, there is no possibility of the wood shattering into a million pieces the same way that it would if you were to punch through it as hard as you could. Likewise, let me give you another illustration of how this works. If you have a swimming pool, for example, you have to pour a very specific amount of chlorine into the pool on a regular basis in order to eliminate uh, all the junk, basically, algae, bacteria, uh, you know, all that nasty stuff. And the cause is the chlorine. The effect would be the elimination of the unwanted elements within the pool. So let's say that you have an Olympic-sized swimming pool, which is filled with, you know, all that stuff, algae, bacteria, and all that other nasty stuff. Well, to clean an Olympic-sized pool, you need uh, right around 65 gallons of chlorine to treat the water sufficiently to rid the water of these toxins. If you were to pour a tablespoon of chlorine into the pool instead, the cleansing potential of a tablespoon of chlorine is far less than is required for cleaning an Olympic-sized pool, and thus there is no chance of efficiently cleaning an Olympic-sized swimming pool with a tablespoon of chlorine. And that's because the potential of an effect cannot be greater than the potential of its cause. Now, one of the myriad questions which evolutionists offer no explanation for is this. How can non-self-conscious material become self-conscious material? Animals, for example, have no sense of morality because they have no self-consciousness. Animals act on nothing other than sheer instinct and conditioning. They have no potential for discerning what is morally right from what is morally wrong. They don't weigh their options in nature before they kill. They only do what their instinct commands. Why don't they have a self-consciousness? It's because the potential of an effect cannot be greater than the potential of its cause. The potential for self-consciousness wasn't within the animal's cause, that is, the parents of the animal, uh, which were also lacking in self-consciousness, and thus the effect which is, of course, the offspring of the, anim- of the, of the animal parents, the, you know, the, the animal that we're talking about, and thus the effect has no self-consciousness either. And that's why we know that there will never be a day when a grizzly bear will sit down at a computer and work out a lesson like this one. And uh, thank goodness, right? That's great for me, since it limits the competition, right? Uh, anyway, you know, we see the same principle throughout nature. The potential for an effect cannot be greater than the potential of its cause. But one objection might come up. What about synergy? And of course, synergy is the phenomenon which happens when two or more things come together and they cause an outcome which is greater than that which any of the causes could alone effect. Uh, Does this principle, does, does synergy negate the principle that the potential for an effect cannot be greater than the potential of its cause? Well, absolutely not. And let me, let me just give you a common example. Uh, codeine is commonly mixed with ibuprofen because the ibuprofen will enhance the effect of the codeine. However, uh, there's still a limited potential. If there wasn't, 
any doctor who prescribed codeine with ibuprofen would be risking the life of the patient for whom the painkiller was prescribed. The potential of the effect, which of course would be diminishing pain, has a direct correlation to the potential of the cause. And even though the ibuprofen enhances the effect of the codeine, and thus there's a synergy there, any doctor will still tell you that there is a limited potential, and they know what it is, uh, in the effect of taking codeine and ibuprofen. If you take one-third of the prescribed dosage, there is no potential that uh, that, that one-third of a dosage would be as strong as taking the fully prescribed dosage. And so thus, the concept of synergy does not negate the principle here. The potential for an effect cannot be greater than the potential of its cause. And that's the first reason I reject macroevolution. Now, the second reason that I reject macroevolution is that macroevolution presupposes that time plus chance will result in order. Let me say that again. Time plus chance will result in order. That's what macroevolution presupposes. However, real empirically based science teaches that time plus chance results in chaos. Uh, let's say I wake up one morning and I find a box of alphabet cereal spilled over on the kitchen counter and as I approach it, I notice that the letters from this box of cereal clearly spell out the words, I love you, let's have dinner tonight. Now let me ask you guys, would a reasonable person assume that the box spilled over on its own and that the letters landed in this order by chance? Or would I be reasonable, would I be more reasonable in assuming that my wife had you know, a creative moment and left this note for me with the cereal. Well, if you're laying on the beach and you look up and you see the words drink Coke in the clouds, would you be reasonable in assuming that it's just a random chance that these words would show up in the clouds? Or would it be more reasonable to conclude that a skywriter put those words up there? Well, the same principle applies to our existence. Our universe is not only extremely orderly, but the human strand of DNA is also very orderly. It doesn't have even the remotest sign of being the result of a random sequence of information. In fact, each strand of human DNA has more information than 100,000 entire encyclopedia volumes. And so there's a very specific order that those uh, that, that information has to be in, in each and every strand of the DNA. And if that information is even slightly out of order, we can't exist. Evolution presupposes that time plus chance will result in order. But the fact is, the scientific fact is, that time plus chance equals chaos. So that's two reasons. First of all, the potential of an effect cannot be greater than the potential of its cause. Secondly, I reject uh, macroevolution because it presupposes something that is unscientific, which is uh, it presupposes that time plus chance will result in order. The third reason I reject evolution is that science has never witnessed an increase in genetic information from one generation of a species to the next. Let me say that again. Science has never witnessed an increase in genetic information from one generation of a species to the next. Have we seen genetic mutations occur? Yes, but this involves a loss of genetic information. And this goes back to our first point, that the potential of an effect can't be greater than the potential of its cause. If the effect did have more potential than its cause, then the difference in potential between a cause and effect would come from where? It would come from from nothing. But what comes from nothing? Nothing. 
And so it's also worth noting that when science has observed genetic mutations, it almost inevitably results in death. Genetic mutations almost inevitably result in death. We would refer to these things as birth defects. But what about the way that bacteria develops immunity to antibiotics, for example? That's one uh, very, very common objection. And again, that type of thing can be attributed to a birth defect, a loss of genetic information. First of all, the potential for developing an immunity uh, on the behalf of this bacteria, uh, the potential for developing an immunity to a given antibiotic was was also within the bacteria which existed before. Uh, secondly, again, it's a loss of genetic information. For example, many bacteria will become immune to an antibiotic because it loses the ability to absorb the antibiotic as effectively. And this isn't macroevolution. You know, if anything, this is an example of microevolution. The bacteria adapts by losing genetic information. I was watching a show on um, on Discovery a few months ago, and they found this this transparent reptile inside of this underground cave, and it was actually the same species as could be uh, found outside of the cave, but which isn't transparent. But for one reason or another, only the transparent reptiles could survive in these caves. And so the scientist that was taking the the tour here and you know finds the the transparent species says that this species quote figured out how to adapt to the environment in the cave. And you know what? I, I just have to say, this is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard in my life. Uh, that's about as absurd as saying that if you lined up everyone in the world at the edge of a cliff and pushed them over one by one, eventually someone would figure out how to adapt to the situation by growing wings. You know, in becoming transparent, the reptiles in the cave had lost genetic information, but they had not gained any new genetic information. Science has never witnessed an increase in genetic information from one generation of a species to the next. What we have witnessed is microevolution, small changes within a species. Uh, let me give you an example. Let's say that you have a certain type of fish, some of which are dark brown and some of which are bright gold. And further, let's say that you have spear fishermen who hunt this particular fish. And of course, what we'll see is that the golden colored fish will eventually all get caught and thus the fish, which are colored dark brown, which are almost impossible to notice in the water, will continue to survive and to populate that area. And thus this particular species in this particular region will adapt in accordance with the notion that the fittest of a species will survive. Well, we've witnessed microevolution like that, but science has never, ever witnessed a case of macroevolution. So that's the third reason that I reject macroevolution. Fourth, I reject macroevolution because there's this thing called irreducible complexity or intelligent design. Uh, some of you might have heard of it. Let's, uh, let's take the giraffe, for example. The giraffe has such a long neck, uh, it must have a very strong heart in order to deliver the blood to the brain of the giraffe up the neck. However, the heart of the giraffe is so strong that what should happen is that when a giraffe bends down to get a drink of water out of a lake, the force of gravity combined with the heart pumping blood should shoot the brains of the giraffe right out the top of the giraffe's head. But why doesn't this happen? Why not? It's because there's a valve at the base of the giraffe's brain that shuts off the blood flow to the giraffe's brain when it goes to take a drink of water. But wait a minute. If that happened, then the giraffe should die instantly because it stopped getting blood and oxygen to its brain. But the giraffe doesn't die. Why not? 
Well, it's because at the base of the giraffe's brain, right between the brain and that valve, there's a soft sponge-like tissue which actually absorbs enough blood to keep fresh blood in the brain of the giraffe while it goes down to take a drink of water. And so thus, the giraffe can take its time getting a drink of water. But wait a minute. Let's go a little further. Let's say that there's a predator, and the predator attacks the giraffe while the giraffe is getting a drink of water. Shouldn't the giraffe be knocked out unconscious by the blood rushing back up into its brain when it stands back up too quickly? Well, it should, but it doesn't. That's not what happens. Why not? It's because the valve opens up slowly enough to prevent that, uh, that from happening, to prevent the blood from shooting up too quickly into the brain. You see, none of these parts or functions of the giraffe's uh, composition of, of, of its brain could have evolved. All of those things had to be in place from the beginning of the existence of the giraffe as a species, because otherwise the very first giraffe would have died. If it would have had a shorter neck, its heart would pump blood too strongly and kill the animal. If it had a long neck, but didn't, uh, but the heart didn't pump blood strongly enough, it would kill the animal. If it didn't have the valve at the base of the brain, it would shoot the blood right up through the top of the animal's head and thus kill the animal. Uh, and here's the thing. We see this type of irreducible, specified complexity throughout nature. And, most significantly, we see it in the human cell. The human cell works in a way that's similar to a watch. If you take one of the parts of the human cell away, the whole thing shuts down and doesn't work. But if you were to add anything to the human cell, it also doesn't work. The human cell shows evidence of intelligent design because it can't function if it's more or less complex than it already is. And so therefore, I reject evolution on the basis of irreducible specified complexity. That's the fourth reason I reject macro evolution. And this brings us to our fifth reason. The fifth reason I reject macro evolution is because, if we're being honest, it's just not scientific. It's not even really a theory. A theory, according to science, must be testable, repeatable, and observable. Uh, macro evolution is none of these things. We've never seen one species give rise to a totally different species or a totally distinct species. Uh, scientists have tried to test and repeat and observe evolution ever since the idea was put forth, but it has always failed miserably. And when you, when you look up Charles Darwin on Wikipedia, you know what it says? It says that Charles Darwin demonstrated that evolution is how we got to where we are today. No, he didn't. Nobody's ever proved that. Nobody's ever... Uh, tested, repeated, or observed evolution. And so thus, it's not even a scientific theory. And even if science were somehow able to create life out of non-life, which is a ridiculous concept. I mean, we don't think that, uh, you know, if we let a rock sit long enough, eventually it'll, you know, have, have an awareness of itself. It'll eventually have a consciousness. Uh, you know, all that would do, if, uh, if science were somehow able to create life out of non-life, all that would do is prove our point that the creation of life requires an intelligent designer. It requires an intelligent giver of life. And you know what? I can't bring this lesson to a close without giving you guys a bonus. Another reason I reject evolution is that evolution is the attempt to find a natural cause for a supernatural event. Let me say that again. Evolution is the attempt to find a natural cause for a supernatural event. The creation of man was a supernatural event, and thus it's impossible to find a natural cause. 
you know, in a recent debate between Frank Turk and uh, an atheist, Christopher Hitchens, Hitchens explained, uh, you know, what he told his children when his children asked how everything came into existence. He said that it's like a suitcase with a bunch of money was sitting there, and then suddenly it sprang open and money went flying everywhere. And that's the same thing that happened with the universe, according to Christopher Hitchens. Now, Hitchens has a brilliant, brilliant mind. He is a smart guy. But let me ask you guys, does his explanation really explain anything? Of course not. Because using his own analogy, it doesn't explain how the money got into the suitcase, or who created the suitcase, or what caused the suitcase to spring open. Hitchens will never know how the universe came into being as long as he looks for a natural explanation for a supernatural event. And similarly, evolution is an attempt to find a natural cause for a supernatural event. So there you have it. Five reasons, really six, reasons I reject macroevolution. Happy birthday, Charles Darwin. So, anyway, if you guys have any questions, of course, you can email me at cleanslate.ministries at hotmail.com, as I mentioned in our last lesson. If it's not a question pertaining to, uh, you know, maybe a clarification on a certain lesson or something that we can use in an upcoming Q&A, I might not be able to get back to you right away. Right now, I'm just, I'm really, really busy with uh, with finishing up school. You know, I've got like a month and a half left until I'm done with seminary and uh, and getting this church planted. And right now, I'm also looking for part-time work. So if I don't get back to you uh, with an answer, just try to have some patience. I'm sorry. I will try to get back to you as soon as I can, though. So anyway, God bless you guys, and thank you so much for listening today. I'll see you next time on BibleStudyPodcast.org. Keep growing closer to Jesus.